So uh, just to give you a little context, obviously my accent is um, a little different. We're from Australia. But in the town that I live in, this little uh, small coastal town that we serve, where we planted the site, uh, I went in to buy paint for the building that we were renovating. And the lady said to me, oh my gosh, it's the French guy who's planting a church in the city. So just gives you some kind of background. So... Uh, <laughs> Oui, oui. So, this is the title of the piece that I'm going to contribute to what's been happening here, which is amazing. Faithful through success and failure. And I'm going to put a subheading to it, dying well as I live for that day. And I will see him face to face. And I'm probably closer to that than many of us in this room. But I want to die well as I live for him and for that day. And that, that's what I want for all of us. And I, I, I mean, I, you know, I've been to many of these things. I'm old enough now to have been to many of these things. And I think when you come to these things, we, we enjoy the camaraderie and the food and we see how other churches do stuff and we have great things and we watch video clips and all the rest of it. But one of the things I think we need to learn to do is as we walk around and we see young guys and middle-aged guys and families and that, we need to like just quietly like, get them Lord. Turn them into a church plant. We, we need to have faith that the next time we do this, people who've been sitting in this meeting are going to be up here and we're laying hands on them and sending them out into the nations to plant somewhere. There, we, we've got to believe that fruit is going to come out of this in the most glorious and outstanding and wonderful way. And so I want to talk into I'm going to just give you three kind of tools that have helped you and I over the years. To be honest, we did have some failures. Some of them, I, I can't even remember them anymore. I, my, you know, my mind is probably seared, and I don't want to go back to that place. But uh, I want to take John the Apostle. He's my current hero. He's called the Apostle of Love. But if you start reading the Gospel of John, he, uh, he's this young guy. He's so excited, full of passion, and, and he's going for it. And uh, you see that in some of the cases. He says, uh, Jesus, let's just call fire down on this village and just destroy the whole jolly thing, you know. Another time he says, man, can uh, my brother James sit on your one side and I sit on your other side and get special parking and a little entitlement? I mean, we're the dudes. And I think there's some humor there because they get... They get a nickname, Sons of Thunder. And I went and read that. They didn't get the nickname Sons of Thunder because they were just jerks. It was like, oh, you boys, I'm going to encourage you in some way. You've got passion, but, man, we're going to have to learn how to control it. And then you get to the end of his life. He's written five books. He's, they try to kill him by boiling him in a big vat of oil. And, and the story tells us that God saved him. And he's in the church at Ephesus. And uh, they had a chair for him at the back, legend tells us. And, and I'm currently having a chair made for me for this moment <laughs> when it comes about. And... Uh, he would be at the back of the church, and no entitlement. The Sons of Thunder thing is still in his heart, but he's learned some lessons along the way how to control that thunder and lightning so it brings life and not destruction. And every Sunday, instead of him saying, hey, hey, do you young bucks mind? I need to say something. Do you know who I am? I'm the thunder one. And he's the only one who lived, who, who was never martyred. He died of old age at 94. And some of the young guys would go pick up the chair, bring it to the front, put it down. And, and out of courtesy and honor of this older gentleman who has served his life for the kingdom of God and affected our lives even, they'd say, please, would you address us? And this was his address. Love one another. 
Because John understood if you got that right, it meant you got the whole gospel right because you can only love one another when you love him and are enjoying the bread of life. Then you can take chunks of the bread of life and give them to those around us. Yeah, so why do you think? Love one another. That's all you've got at 94 after you've walked with Jesus, been in the revelation. Yes, that's all I've got. It's everything. And so some of what I share today, I hope, will take us on that kind of journey and... Uh, when we're all old and our grandkids are running around or planting churches or whatever, we get the chance to say, love one another, indicating that we understand and live in the good of all the gospel has for us. So let's find some things out from the apostle of love. So first thing I want to talk about this morning is be absolutely, completely certain of your calling. That sounds like so mundane. But I think it's incredibly important. And, and many of the things I want to talk about it come from some, you know, watching some of the stuff unfold over the years. So Mark chapter 1, 16, verse 20, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and Johnny, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets, and immediately he called. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. And so we know there's these different calls. There's this call of salvation. And there is this call to serve God, which doesn't necessarily mean you've got to go full-time into ministry. Your, your, your job at a school, your, your position as a nurse, your uh, being a businessman, helping Delta sort out the baggage issues that crop up now and then, if that's your job. Those are callings as well. We called always to be this bread of life, as Al talked about, that's always just leaking this warm, life-giving story of Jesus Christ. But there is this specific call that will come to many of us, and I hope tons in this room, whether young, old, middle-aged, where we hear at some point the Father say, I need you to come and help me distribute fresh bread across the earth in a more definite way than just what a businessman or a nurse or someone would like that would do. And, and I want us to understand there's going to be many attacks. We've heard about that. That's one of the things I've loved about how open we've been this, work. There'll be, this week. There'll be many attacks. It's, it's not all rosy. It's not all beautiful. And, and we know there's a process. And I'm just going to say the process for younger guys so that you know how to go about this thing. Uh, God is the initiator of the call. You don't initiate that. He does it. That's part of how you know that you know that you know. You, you work out this call in the local context of a church. You don't go and sit in a field by yourself and, and, and prepare yourself for ministry and all the rest of it. It's worked out in this context where people can say, that is awesome. Keep going. That is disgusting. Please never do that again. <laughs> the character piece is godliness. Your home is your proving ground. Even if you're single, I'd love to see some single guys and gals being called that we can send to nations and see them do amazing things. Love is the heart of the call. And in the waiting part, I found the waiting part the hardest. But in the waiting, God does the most preparation, I think, in our lives. The uh, graduating class of my end of my seminary training in South Africa was 32 students. 
Only two are still in ministry. I'm one of them, and there's another guy in South Africa. Uh, one died, and two had moral failures, and the rest just quit. And to be honest, looking back, I don't think all those guys had, had the call of God. There was something else brewing in their heart. They'd noticed the pastor got a little bit of shine, and so there was some shortage in their soul that hadn't been ministered to by the church. And so, okay, the way I get some shine and sparkle and a cool parking, I go to ministry. America, I think it's 1,500 guys a month stepped out. I did read that statistic. I don't know how accurate it is, but even if it's 10 a month, it's 10 too many. This call isn't just going to a youth camp, a guy from some, some country where he's been a missionary and you can't even spell the name of the country. He sits down and tells you stories and these amazing things. We wrestled a rhino to the ground and blah, you know. And then the leader says, who, who feels called to Jesus? I do. Okay, let's take a pine cone, throw it in the fire. That, now you're called. <laughs> now some of you laughing because you've done the pine cone thing. No, no, the, the, the calling's much bigger than that. It, it, it means I understand I'm being written into God's story. It's amazing to me how many churches today still think it's their story and don't realize that these people have been redeemed by the King of Kings to come into His story. And His story is, is easily explained. Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's, it's picking up on some of what PJ said. There's an order in their call from Egypt. It says, past grace, you saw what I did for you. My November 74, a little town called Krugersdorp in South Africa, my past grace moment happened for me. Then you think he'd talk about present grace, but he doesn't. He takes them up on the mountain and says, you think you're very special. The problem is everyone out there is special for me, and I need you lot to help me go get there. He shows future grace. And then he says, listen, I'll look after you as we do this together present grace. You've got to get that order right or your call is a waste of time. Past, future, present. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story quickly. I used to pastor, I planted, the first church I planted from scratch was in a town called Port Elizabeth, which was just down the road from a town called J Bay, Jeffreys Bay. And my in-laws had a house there just by tubes. So any of you surfer guys, yeah, super tubes was right there. And so I took time off and I, I fasted because I am going to hear God's vision for our church. And I, I went and uh, got in this little RV. It was like a, a giant Coketon on wheels. There was no air conditioning or anything. I was so incredibly hungry. And I, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And I heard absolutely nothing. And so I went and sat on the beach and, and notebook. Okay, God, I'm ready. How do we do this church? Then I saw a, a seagull swoop. Okay, I can do a, a thing on the swooping of the enemy to rob us. <laughs> yeah, you guys laugh. You, you, you're going to do this. Your story. And then I watched the waves. They're consistent. We want to be a consistent church. They were powerful. We want to be a powerful church. The seaweed question mark. I can't really work out. What are you saying to me? And folks, I'll never forget. I got up on the Sunday and I said, listen, folks, we're going to do an eight-week series on vision. Something. 
And I realized three minutes in, I had nothing. And it was right in that moment, God suddenly showed me, Tom, it's not about your church's vision and your vision. It's about mine. My boy, I grabbed you because I need you for this. Changed everything. Got to get that into our core. Be written into God's story. God wants to do some business on earth. He's looking for people to take fresh bread. I'd love that uh, picture this morning. My wife makes our own bread at home. Oh, we could, we could sell it. It's so amazing. We get this privilege to take fresh bread to hungry souls. It's not about position or anything like that. And part of it, for me, the best metaphor that's always helped me is the preparation of the bride of Christ. So when Yuna, got, when, when Yuna and I got married... Um, I was very particular about who prepared her. I did not want my wife coming down the aisle looking dorky and people not liking her or whatever the case. I mean, some of our old boyfriends were there and I wanted to like, take that, dude. (laughs) I won. (laughs) It's an honest truth. It's an honest truth. And so who prepared her was important. And that's what we call to do if we hear the call of God. To, to plant and lead churches is to take his woman and prepare her for that day when she will be presented to him. And how dare we ever touch her inappropriately? And, and the guy preached here at Southlands at the old building years and years ago, and he said, there is a darkness that awaits those people who touch her inappropriately that is darker than anything. That's the privilege. I, I get to take Jesus' bride and, and help her and wash some dirt off and say, add this in. Oh, my gosh, that looks glorious. Lord, she's nearly, nearly ready. Do you, do you, you've got to feel in the call what a high privilege this is, even in all the, in all the crud that's going on. And I, I, I'm not saying that lightly. Honestly, I'm not. But you've got to see the joy and the wonder Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We help the bride get mature. Secondly, I'm going to talk about an epitaph. My subheading is this, desires determine our actions. So Spurgeon was a pretty controversial character uh, just because he was a truthful guy, and God was using him in amazing ways. Papers hated him. They often put cartoons about him, showing him like a strange man. And so someone asked him, said, Mr. Spurgeon, what would you like on your gravestone? What would be the epitaph on your gravestone? And Spurgeon said this, saved, set free, or delivered from the opinions of man. This is a huge one. You're going to see as you go on this journey, many of us know this already, there are the opinions of man and there are God's truth. And you can get caught up in this stuff. Desires determine our actions. If I have an inward lack and I desire to be something or someone, I go and develop a huge social media thing for myself. And we can camouflage it with military-grade camouflage because we're so clever. But if I cut open your heart, or if you cut open my heart, inside, oh, there's this need in this person. 
And when that need is not satisfied the correct way, we will create ways to satisfy it. A lot of that we'll get from what other people think. Instead of coming to the king. John 5.44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the Holy One or from the only God? Proverbs 29.25, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord, L-O-R-D, the great I am, is safe. You just think about that, but I guarantee you all of us in this room, and, and including me, definitely, that's where I learned this lesson. There's been times when we haven't gone with God's truth, and instead we've gone with what people want. You know, for example, the first time I had to d discipline a, a, a couple in the church because of moral failure. Oh, what are people going to think? You walk around all night, oh, my ministry's over. So just now, hang on a minute. That's what you say? I've got to rest in that. Even, even if I get treated badly, I've got to rest in that. The emphasis has got to be on Jesus. We, we, in our salvation, folks, we were, part, part of the package was we were set free from public and human opinion. Now, it doesn't mean we become these jerks. I don't care what you say. We will put a purple yellow cross in here with an ostrich tied to it or whatever. Where we live lots. <laughs> Maybe not here. And Jesus, when he talks about this, he's trying to help us. There's a very serious thing that he brings to the front. He, he's showing that this opinion of man can actually roadblock our faith and belief. In the very first night, what did we talk about? We're going to go with faith. So we can have faith, as PJ talked about it. We can study it in the book. But then there's action that comes with the faith. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to let people's opinion take control of your life, forget about the faith. You either believe in me and have faith, or you believe in people's opinion and have faith. Choose. Fear of man. And Jesus says to them, I've given you some witnesses. He says, I've given you John the Baptist. I've done all these miracles as signs. Alan talked about that, to be a witness. And then there's the scriptures. They, they're they life-giving. You have all these witnesses to my goodness and my glory and my majesty, and yet you still choose how people think about you. And in that moment, you cut off any belief or faith in the deposit of God. And you get whatever man has for you. John 5, 41 says, I do not receive glory from people. And, and we know that's not true. We, we may not understand what he's saying there because Jesus did get accolades. People did say, thank you so much. And people shouted and cheered. And when he came into Jerusalem, they were like celebrating him and all the rest of it. But what he's saying, he's not saying, no, no one ever thanked me for anything. No, they did. They followed him all over the place because they were so thankful. But this is what he's saying. I do not make human opinion my priority. My life is not determined by people's acceptance, approval, or applause. It's not my driving motivation. It's God's opinion that matters. That is my motivation. That's got to be your motivation. 
In fact, I want to just quickly say this, just a little side thing I'll chuck in there, a little few little nuggets here and there. As, as you're on this journey, you, you need to cultivate humility. I, I'm glad some guys taught me about that when I was a little younger, because as I'm getting older, I think it would be much harder to cultivate. I'm not, I, I haven't reached perfect humility. I've got to be honest. You know, we'll tell you that in a heartbeat. But I do have a sort of a muscle of humility in there. Because when you get older, you may not be the point guy anymore. Or you may not even lead a church anymore. You'll be training kids in the kids' ministry or, or something. And, and your life changes. And if, you, if you've built yourself on what people think of you and all that, and you try and transfer and you haven't got humility, you will cause drama after drama after drama. You don't respect me. You know, look over my shoulder, see what I've accomplished. You've got to grow in humility. You can't do as much. You've had to go and buy the chair, the John chair at Ikea. And, and, and I watch people, you know, I watch um, guys talk with, you know, false humility. So you could have someone come up here and, you know, let's just say Alan, because he's been hassling me a bit in the morning. And Alan comes and he sings a prophetic song and you come up, Al, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Touched my heart. And Alan says, actually, it wasn't me. It was Jesus. I'm telling you, that's false humility. I would turn around in that instance and say, Al, I, I know we made in the image of God. I'm not sure he looked like you in the first place. And if Jesus was doing a bit a lot better than what you did. <laughs> Jesus says here, let me just go back to the humility thing. If you're older and you're serving younger guys, the best way is to celebrate them. They may do some strange things and dumb things, but you celebrate them and you celebrate God's hand on them and what they're working. I mean, I'm surrounded by only young guys. In fact, at this age, that's probably going to be true for the rest of my days. <laughs> And you celebrate them. Their first preach. Their first leading a prayer meeting. Nothing really got prayed for, but you gave it a go. That's so awesome. And it can't be false humility just so they will like you. You do it because you love them and what God's doing through their lives. John 5.44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory of that that comes from God? If our primary motivation is acceptance, approval, applause, our belief is out the window. Our faith can't work. And we can say we're exercising faith. We're going to build this building and all the rest of it. But deep in our soul, what's going on is if I get that building built, oh, what did I do? I'm going to say, you know, it wasn't really me. It was all of us together. But back home, like, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. was me. I think that... It, the enemy plays on this a lot, especially in Western culture. You, you can't chase human approval and God's. You've you got to make a choice. And we camouflage it so well, guys. Where I camouflage it, the Marines should come and see how I do it because it's military-grade camouflage. You can't see through it. John 5.42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. There he hits it on the button. 
And what it means is I've taken off Jesus' yoke, which is a yoke of love, and I've taken on the, work, the yoke of, of another narrative, which is about being lifted up, exalted, all that kind of stuff. And we live in that every day. I've got to take on Jesus' yoke, which is an easy yoke, but the Bible tells us it's also a yoke of His love, enjoying Him each and every day. And I think it's like um, gauges on the dashboard of a car. You have the faith gauge and you have the opinion of people gauge. And what Jesus is simply saying here is when your faith gauge is up, you've got to discipline a family in the life of the church for moral failure or some other sin. And the word says you do this. You've got faith for it. God will come through. It may get a little bit rough for a while, but I trust my king. Let's do this thing. And Sunday morning you do it. Your faith gauge is up and it's rocking and it's going and your opinion gauge is on empty. But if you go with the opinion gauge, man, this family's been in the church 30 years. They paid for that wall, that wall, and that wall. I mean, can't we do it behind the scenes and not let anyone know about this? And can't we just pray them and fast them out of the church? No faith there. Then this gauge is way up and the faith gauge is at zero. And then people vote with their feet. Their finances and Facebook. They let everyone know you are horrible. And there are going to be moments when you're going to see on Facebook, that, that's me you're talking about like that? Wow. And then you're going to look at your faith thing and say, oh, he's my king. This is, this is going to get rough for a while. I'm going to trust him. And then we have each other to push out each other through that in the moment. Folks, I do believe social media can be a, test, a, a tool that helps us. But I think it's a tool that can destroy us. And not because it's something you put on there. I think it's a tool that can destroy us because of our heart. And our heart leads to that thing. I'm nervous. I don't trust my heart to that thing. Spurgeon says we are saved from human opinion. The Bible tells us that the hordes of Egypt were drowned by the king of kings. Our fear of man has been drowned by the blood of Jesus. And we need to agree with that. Some scriptures I'll read quickly and then we close off with the last point. John 5.43 says, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So here's Jesus. If, you, if a Harvard guy arrives, you'll receive him. And then he says in John 5.45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And what Jesus is saying here is saying, it's not just me who's going to accuse you to the Father. But Moses is also, remember he's talking to Jews. He's saying Moses is also, so it's two witnesses. And there's this principle. Now, this isn't your best life now trick or anything like that. It's just in Scripture. And this thing has helped you and I over the years so much. It says in Revelations 12, 11, And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they li loved their lives not even unto death. So, so the blood of the Lamb, the gospel, we, we've got that. And it says by their testimony. So do, does my testimony go with man's opinion? Or I say, no, I'm stepping over here. I'm agreeing with this. And so you've got the testimony of the gospel. You've got two testimonies. And Deuteronomy says everything is established by two witnesses. It's just the, the devil and, you know, the angel on each side. That's all it's doing, trying to show us. And so for you and I, over and over the years, these things have come. And we had to say, what does God say? It's impossible. This, it's too sore. Please let us out. We have to say, no, he saved us. He called us. We don't see it right now, but we agree with him. We 
understanding. And then the matter is established and comes to pass by his grace and his goodness. Uh, number three. A paint-by-numbers God is not going to be good enough for you. You seen those things? You can take your family photograph. I thought of doing it, but I would just get, I'd just tear it up. I'd get so bored and impatient. You take a picture of your family, you send it to this place, they send it back, and they send you all the pots of um, uh, paint with the numbers on. And then you spend four years painting the thing. And then when it's finished, you look and like, who are these people? I, don't, I can't recognize it. And we can, we can have that kind of God. We, 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 we need to understand this revelation of God is an unfolding revelation. It's like the curtain gets back all, a little bit, little bit. I, I have to have a greater revelation of God when I get on the plane at the end of this time and go back to North Carolina than when I came here. Because things have been taught and ministries happened into my heart. And the curtains come back. Oh, my gosh, you know, look at that. And John says that. Go and read the Revelation. He says over and over again, look. He doesn't say go and pick up Arthur A.W. Pink's book on the immutable, immutable attributes of God. Look. Oh, my gosh, look at that one. He says, look at the real thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading books, and obviously when we read Scripture, faith comes. But look what Jesus did here. He says in uh, John 17, verse 1, it says, I have manifested. Your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He, 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 he didn't just talk about God. He put God on display. Revelations 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And I think there's, there's something of a, a, a part of the spirit life that we call to live that is constantly pulling back the curtains that we see more of God in our daily life. And from that place, with strength, we go and touch the world. Here's an example. When I got married, we've, I think we're 42 years in, 43, around there, amazing years. For you know, it's been the greatest journey of our life. And me, absolutely, you got to know, I married up, man. So I read books. There were hardly any books those days. Woman, this is what they look like. That does that. I don't really know. Whew, I was a really naive dude. Asked some older guys about some, you know, really more intimate things. They turned and just ran. They wouldn't talk about it. So I, I had knowledge. I'd been in the book. We go on honeymoon. Little Bible college students saved up money. You know, we ate a sandwich. And then, you know, the, you know, you know made the, cut the covenant. <laughs> and woke up in the morning and Una was crying. Where's the book? It's not in the book. Where's the thing? What is this? She wants her dad. What is that? Help me. My mom. She wanted her mom. Pick phone your mommy. And just let me, a little aside, help your wife have her own walk with the king. Buy her the Bibles, the books, give her the time, find a babysitter. Your wife cannot run off your revelation. She's got to have her own. Make room for your wife. Look at him, John says, 20 times. We, uh, in the hurricane that's just happened, we, uh, our buildings, we used two facilities and, they, and they, they were hit, so we can't use them. 
And so I'd just been at the office. They tell me, it's hit, you can't use them. Get in my car. And I'm a shortcut guy. Always, I don't like going on the big roads just because I'm a bit rebellious. That's the truth. I like a shortcut. And so I'd go through this huge Methodist church's property all the time to get home. And as I'm driving, I just said, God, what are we going to do? Could you do something? I knew every facility in that town was full up or had been hit or the schools were shut. The schools are still closed by us. God, could you please do something? And I just kept driving. That's it. I just kept driving. And 90 seconds later, I get to my house, and my, my executive pastor, who's here, Dougie, he phones me and said, hey, the, the, uh, the Methodist church just phoned and said, you can use their facilities free of charge. See, I, I had something downloaded into my heart in that moment that wasn't paint number four on the picture of God, provider. No, I saw it. I experienced it. You can't take that out of me ever again. So if I miss the flight, when I have to fly back, I, I know he's a provider. He'll, he'll do something. We're on another God adventure. Yaha! You better have a huge and growing revelation of the Father. And I think one of the ways to do that is to be generous. Now, this isn't in, isn't in light of offerings and that. These were in my notes long ago. This is what you and I learned. 2 Corinthians 9.6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, this is not another your best life moment. I'm not, I'm not that guy. But there is a prosperity that's spoken about in the gospel. There is a truth that I sow, I reap. But do I sow in order to reap? Maybe in this case. And when we don't sow, Sometimes it's because we have a poverty mentality, and that poverty mentality is because our picture of God is like one of those tiny little things that women wear on the, you know, on the necklace. We need a picture of God that, that spans all these walls in this place, and like, oh, that, or that, oh, my gosh. You and I, it's the only story I'll tell you, and we'll, we'll close. You and I pastored, the first church I pastored in was, I was the assistant pastor, the associate pastor in, the, in that city, Port Elizabeth. I went and planted back there later. The man who led it was incredibly charismatic. It was a, it was a thumping church. It was about 360 people at that time. And he, he had a little bit of a bent heart and wanted some fame and fortune, so he moved to a bigger city, and we got voted in to take it. And then while he's in this big city, uh, he, he encountered some books by by an American, John MacArthur, and discovered, or by his words, not MacArthur's, this man's words, that anything spiritual, tongues, prophecy, all that, is from Satan. And he came back to the town. And the denomination, for whatever reason, allowed him to get up and preach one more time. He preached, and when he said amen, the whole congregation jumped over all the pews and stole everything except the piano. <laughs> you know, I was sitting there with one little kid. Wow. <laughs> I can honestly say to this day, we never got hurt. I remember saying to you now or somebody, you know, this piece of God's bride, she's a little, you know, she's a little cranky. <laughs> it never really got into my heart, you know. We just love the king. Our salary is 37 bucks a month. But we sow because that is the nature of our king. He's a bread giver. And so whatever little we had, we just gave it. We gave it. We didn't sow to get anything. We were too dumb to know that. And we, I remember having half a loaf of bread, and we had some young guys over, and we're like, cut it. 
some toast, peanut butter, let's fellowship. That's all we had. We would come home time and time and time and time again, and our cupboards would be full of food. I opened the cupboard once. Rice just cascaded out like a sort of, hey, son, have this. <laughs> this time, one time, I came home, and there was a loaf of bread in our post box that could not have been put in there. You, you would have had to dismantle the welded seams to get it in there. Honestly, you could not get it in any other way unless it was a miracle. And in that moment, God was about to take a brush and on my heart and Eunice's heart, just paint another muscle of his. I remember I had to rip it out to get it out. I had to pull it in pieces. And what's so interesting, Alan's preach this morning, I remember as I was pulling it out, I felt the Spirit saying to me, this is just like his body broken for us. And just, oh God, he's still around, 37 bucks, and God, I'm okay. So let me close with this. There's a story I've only told one other time at a conference, and when it was the last conference I preached at it here in Ontario many years ago now. And I'll tell it quick. An Aussie couple inherit a house in Sydney. They can't do anything with it. It's so expensive. Even the demolition, they can't demo demolition the place to sell it. And so they're distraught. So they climb up into the ceiling for the last time, into the loft, and the guy finds a bunch of pictures, takes them down to an art dealer. One of them's a Rembrandt or a Picasso or something, and it was worth about $230 million. And when... You know, first they're looking at a broken house. They've got nothing to fix. Turn, $230 million. When you see that and turn back, ha! You know, when I got up this morning, I had a look into heaven. Spent some time, just like all of us. The king's still on the throne. Pop my head into heaven. He's there. And as Alan said, this too will pass. Some of the things we go through, folks. It will pass. And the glorious thing of when these things pass is that there's a richer deposit of God in you. If you're not living by the fear of man, but, but living by Him, there's a richer deposit. The stone is polished. And you, your faith is up. This too shall pass. Amen. Sounds like.